It's good to see you tonight. Uh, If you're visiting with us, and I don't really know where that line falls, but if you consider yourself a visitor, we're glad that you're here. We hope and pray that what we study tonight will be a benefit to you and a blessing to you. Uh, I will tell you, I I get excited about giving certain messages. Uh, This is probably, of, of all the sermons that I preach, this is probably my favorite Uh, because of the impact it's had on my life personally. Um, I think that when we we think about the human condition, and I know that makes some people cringe when we say things like that, but every single person, if they lived any length of life, they're going to at some point deal with sin. And there's some truths about sin that we're going to talk about tonight. And, and before we get into our text, I, I want to kind of set up the scene of Psalms 51, verses 1 through 10. Now, once we read these Psalms, if, if you're not recognizing that number, you, you will when we get there. Because it's very, very familiar to us. We, we probably read it numerous times. But I just want to give some context to this psalm. I'm sure you know that David, King David, is known in Scripture as the man after God's own heart. And we we certainly see that in his youth, in his life, in his courage, his devotion and his commitment to God and his his heart in turning in repentance to God. And, And we see David do some tremendous things in his life. But you know, there's a moment in David's life that is magnified for us. In 2 Samuel. And that moment in his life was probably one of the more dark times in his existence. The Bible records in 2 Samuel 11 verse 1 that while the kings were off to war, David was at home. And he went outside one night onto the roof of the king's palace. And he looked out and he saw a woman bathing And the Bible says she was very beautiful to behold. And so he sent his servants and he inquired about her and and, and they came and they told him, they said, well, this is Bathsheba. She is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Uriah was one of David's mighty men of valor, a loyal soldier, a good and godly person. David said, bring her to me. And so they did. And that night... David and Bathsheba had a night of passion. He slept with her. Well, she became pregnant. And she sends word to David. And she tells him, I'm with child. And David starts to scheme and to plot and to plan and find out, how am I going to undo this? Now, understand, the reason why David is doing this is because the law is very, it's very specific. If a woman is caught in adultery... And she cheats on her husband, she's to be put to death. If a man is caught in adultery, he's with another man's wife. He's to be put to death. David wants to hide this sin. So he has Uriah called back home from war. That's where he's at, out in battle. Uriah comes home and David has him brought to his house. And he says, Uriah, I want you to go home and I want you to be with your wife. And Uriah says, I'm not going to do that. He says, how can I go and be in comfort of my home and, and, and enjoy the comforts of home while my fellow soldiers are out and they're fighting in battle? David said, well, that didn't work. Plan B. He gets your eye drunk. Because you know how people are. When they're inebriated, they're a lot more open to suggestion, a little bit easier to, to steer and to navigate. Your eye still won't go home. He sleeps outside. With the servants. David finally comes up with a plan he feels like will be foolproof. He writes a letter and he addresses it to his general, who is his nephew, Joab. And he sends this letter sealed with the instructions that in the hottest part of the battle to call for the soldiers to retreat and leave Uriah exposed so that he will be killed. Guess who carries the letter? Uriah. And it works. It works. They go into battle. 
They go to a place that strategically makes zero sense. Joab calls for the soldiers to back off and Uriah is killed and this sin is hidden. It's covered up. Does that sound like a man after God's own heart to you? That's hard to hear, isn't it? But you know what? That's reality. Sometimes people make terrible mistakes. Sometimes so much so, they're so blinded by their passion and their situation that they're going through all this and we look at them and we go, how could you possibly do something so depraved, so terrible? You know what's really interesting to me? Is a friend of David's, Nathan the prophet, comes to David and he tells him this story. I'm not going to take time to tell the story, but, but after telling him that story, David looks at this situation and goes, you know what, whoever that is, that man deserves to die. Nathan said, it's you. You're that man. And with that guilt, now in his face, David writes this song. That's the context. So let's read it together. Psalms chapter 51, verse 1. To the chief musician, the psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. These are the words of David. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts and the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a a steadfast spirit within me. Do you know why David is called a man after God's own heart? It wasn't because he was perfect. He certainly was not. But see, here's what David did. No matter what happened in life, David always sought God. He always sought God. And when he made this tremendous mistake and he's confronted by a loving friend who is willing to be courageous enough to rebuke him for his sin, he cries out to God. And in this crying out, you know what he says? My sin is ever before me. Now we don't like to admit this, but not all sin is created equal. It's not. And we say that, we say sin is sin, all sins the same. No, it's not. And you already know that. You know, I remember when I was, I was probably about eight years old, uh, I went with my grandfather to Chief Plastic Plumbing Supply in Pampa, and I, I don't know what we went there to get. He may have just wanted to go visit with the store owner for, for all I know. Because that's what he did. And I'm an eight-year-old eight kid. And I'm, I go in there and I've got this backpack on. And I'm over there and I'm just enamored with all the various C, PVC, and PVC parts. And, and I, I'm just astounded at how all these different parts just fit together. And so I just start loading them up in my backpack. And I, I got quite a few. You know, and they were none the wiser. I, I mean, I get out to the to pickup, and we get in his old Dodge diesel truck, and we drive back out to the house all the way on the other side of town, which is about a 12 or 13 minute drive. And I get out and I go down in the basement, and I pour all this out on the floor, and I'm putting all this, you know, big mass of nothingness together. And I hear from the stairs, boy. And I look. And I was busted. I mean, I was busted. So guess what we did? 
We loaded the plumbing parts back into the backpack and we went all the way back across town and went into Chief Plastic Plumbing Supply. And my grandfather made me, as an eight-year-old boy, walk up and talk to this store owner and explain to him what I had done. And I remember I felt so ashamed. But I'm just going to be real honest with you. I remember that very vividly. I've never laid awake at night thinking about that. It's not, it, it's not ever before my face. But I tell you, there's other things I've done where I've hurt people. I've betrayed people. I've manipulated people. I've done things I would never want any of you to know. And I'll tell you, those sins, they're much harder to get past. But that's sin. And that's the type of sin that David is dealing with. And he's not the only person that we read about in Scripture who, who had this type of sin, the type of sin that really it haunts you, if you will. It stays in your memory. It causes you grief. Sometimes it causes you depression. But you know, another person we read about in Scripture who dealt with this was probably somebody who most of us admire maybe more than anybody else in the Bible, and that's the Apostle Paul. But you know, before the Apostle Paul was the Apostle Paul, he was Saul of Tarsus, and that was a name that would strike fear into the hearts of Christians because he was a terrorist. I know that's a word that gets overused, but listen, he was a terrorist to God's people. He was seeking their harm daily. He was zealous. He was on fire. But then he met Jesus. And everything changed. And this is him having a conversation with Jesus. He's recalling a conversation that he had with Jesus. And as Jesus told him he was going to be a witness in many places, he explains to Jesus that, that I don't need to go to Jerusalem. Lord, they know what I've done. They know that, that in every synagogue I am prison and I beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I was also standing consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Now, I don't know if you've really ever thought about Saul of Tarsus's involvement in Stephen's death. You know, it's, it's, it's sort of, it's, it's really succinct there in just saying that they put the clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. Right? That's all you get out of that. But do you know who this was? You ever thought about stoning I'm not trying to be graphic. I just want you to understand the gravity of the situation. Have you ever seen somebody stoned to death? I bet you haven't. Do you know how brutal that was? They, listen, they didn't throw somebody in a pit and drop a, a, a boulder on their head and they died instantly. These are not MLB pitchers. They're, they're not baseball players. These are people, and they just grab rocks and they start throwing them at a person until they die. It'd be horrific to see something like that. But what would be more horrific than seeing it is knowing that you're complicit in it. Why is he holding their clothes? Why they got the clothes off? Because that's what they did. They took their outer garment over because it's about to get dirty. He's not over there holding their clothes because he said, young man, hold these clothes. He's kind of like the mafia boss. He's a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He's leading the charge. He's going, yeah, kill him. Kill him. He's not getting his hands dirty, but he's standing over there saying, yes, that man needs to die. You don't think that haunted Paul? This isn't the only time in Scripture that he brings up the blood of your martyr Stephen. But here's what's amazing. Knowing all that, listen to what Paul said. He said, finally, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, now listen, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all of those who loved his appearing. How do you do that? 
How do you know that you've been a terrorist, that you've persecuted God's people, that you're complicit in a man's murder, not just his murder, but other people's deaths? You've beat people because they serve Jesus. But then you turn around and you look at God and you have this kind of confidence where you say, I know I'm going to heaven. And not only that, I know I'm going to heaven and I'm going to receive a crown of righteousness. How do you have peace with your past? So let's talk about that. I'm afraid a lot of times what we try to do when we're trying to find peace with our past is we ask the wrong questions. And this is a question that we, maybe you're asking yourself, how am I ever going to forgive myself? And I'm just going to go ahead and answer that. You won't. And you don't need to. And that's the wrong question. Nowhere in Scripture that I'm aware of does the Bible ever teach this concept. I've made that challenge multiple times. No one has ever shown me where any person was ever told, required, suggested to forgive themselves. It's not a biblical concept. It's a worldly concept. Now, it is a way of describing what we all long for, and that is this. How am I ever going to forget what I've done? And be at peace with it. Do you think that David ever forgot about Bathsheba and Uriah? Do you know who was around his deathbed? Bathsheba. Because he married her. And I don't want to assume things about a man, but I would guess that it'd be very hard to see her and not remember, wouldn't you? You think Paul ever forgot about Stephen? About the others? See, that's not the answer. It's not about forgetting. And this question implies something. It implies that there is some means or some method, some work or performance or something that I do in order to get to the point where I go, okay, now I can just let it go. That's not how it works. It's actually a misunderstanding of God's scheme of redeeming and justifying and atoning for our sins. So I want to really be specific. You know, what, what do you think when you read those words? Well, that means you're saved. Does it? Yeah, it does. It means you're saved. But, but let's not be so elementary about it that we just read those words and go well that just means you're saved these words all have their own meaning and a great significance in how we are saved so i want to talk about these words just for a moment let's first look at romans chapter 5 verse 9 he says much more than having now been now listen justified by his blood we shall be saved from wrath through him for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having now been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So here's a couple of the words that we mentioned. Now, he said, I don't remember the, I don't remember the word reconciled. I remember the word atonement. That is the same thing. Atonement and reconcile is the same thing. Atone is actually a combination of two English words, at and one, put together. At one, or at one or atonement our reconciliation our propitiation is another word that's used there to describe conciliating or making friends again there's enmity between two they're brought back together and made at one jesus reconciles us to god the word justify means to clear from guilt it means to make that which is wrong right and any of you kids who use microsoft word what does control j do you highlight everything, you push control J. It lines up the margins. You know what that word is? It justifies the margins. They're all crooked, we made them straight. We're crooked, we need to be made straight. Question, can you justify yourself? Can you clear yourself of guilt? Can you bring yourself to God? What are you going to do to accomplish that? Only the blood of Jesus will ever take away the sin of your past. Only the blood of Jesus. 
Not you. Not some psychological method that some man somewhere tells you, you do this enough, you'll forget about it. That's not going to work. You need Jesus. That's what you need. Ephesians 1 7 says this In him, that's Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. You know, this word is probably even more important that we understand than justify and atone. Because we use this word a lot. We call Jesus the Redeemer. We say we're the redeemed and we say we have redemption. What is redemption? What is redemption? Do you know what the word redemption is attached to? A ransom. You know what a ransom is? That's where somebody's in captivity. And there's a price that is required to be released from that captivity. And the very word of redemption is that you are bought. You are purchased and released from your ransom. And who did that? Jesus did. Can you redeem? Look, you don't have enough money. You don't have enough money to redeem yourself. You don't have enough goodness. You know why? Because there's none righteous. There's none righteous. If you're righteous tonight, it's not because you're good. It's because God's good. And because he redeemed you and justified you and he reconciled you through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And that's it. But you can't do anything to erase your past. It's not within your power. So Romans 3, Paul ties all of this together when he says this. And I'm, I'm going to insert the definitions that we just talked about in the place of these words. So that we can really understand what this verse means. Having been made right freely by his grace through the payment that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God set forth as an atoning factor or as a reconciler. By his blood, through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness. Y'all remember the old song that we used to sing, Will It Do? Will it do, precious Jesus? You know what the answer is? No. No, it won't. You know what we'll do? This is what David understood. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned. Someone says, well, I'm pretty sure he sinned against Uriah. He did. But he needs God's forgiveness. He needs God's forgiveness. Uriah's dead. See, and that's one thing about sin. Sometimes sin, the sin that we commit where we hurt people, we may never, ever be able to go to them and resolve that situation. They may be out of our life. They may have moved across the world for all we know. But I'm telling you, there may be some things you just think, I can't get closure. Yeah, you can. Yes, you can. And here's how. You understand that who is going to give you peace is God. Because when we sin, we may hurt people, we may sin against people, but we sin against God, and it's Him who will justify us. It's Him who will redeem us. It's Him who will erase our sin. So I want to ask you a question. Are you greater than God? You said, boy, we took a left turn. Stay with me. Are you greater than God? Have you ever thought to yourself, I'm greater than God? I hope not. But let me just think, let, let's just really think about this. Jesus pays the payment, right? And what was the payment? He was, he was beaten. He was mocked. He was scourged. He was spit on. He was nailed to a cross. He died an agonizing death to pay for our sin. 
And imagine that God redeems us and we obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then we look at God and we say, yeah, but there's some sins that I'm not going to let go of yet. And he goes, but I paid for those. And you say, yeah, but your stripes aren't enough for my sin, Jesus. Because God said it's good enough. And we go, yeah, but not yet. And in doing that, what we've said is, God, my standard, it's greater than yours. You know, what our, you know what our biggest problem in letting go of our past is? Trust. Trust. You know one of the words that we hate more than anything? Surrender. Surrender. Because that sounds like losing, doesn't it? Sounds like you lost. But you know what God wants from us? To surrender. To surrender our will. To surrender our life. To surrender our heart and our mind to Him. To commit to Him our pain. Our shame. Our guilt. And say, I can't do anything with this. It's yours. Take it. Fix it. Because pride is at the heart of this question. You will never get past your past until you stop trying to find peace within and start seeking peace that comes from above. And what you've got to do is surrender your pain to God. And then trust Him. Do you know that's what the word commit means? Commit. Commit literally means to deposit into a trust. When you go to a bank and you give them their, your money, you know why it's called a first bank and trust? Because there's not a whole lot of people I would go, hey, here's my money, take care of this, I'll be back for it later. There's some faith there, isn't there? There's some trust that's put in their hands to say, this is yours, I trust that you'll do with it what we've talked about. Why is it that we'll trust some banker somewhere to, to make sure our money gets put in the right place, but we won't trust God with the one thing that he's guaranteed he will take care of, and that's our sin. So, letting go of our past is the result of faith and trust in God. It's not the result of forgetting that I've sinned, but knowing that God paid the debt. That's where peace comes from. Now, the question is, how do we obtain that peace? Let's quantify this. What did David ask for? He said, wash me. Cleanse me. You want it gone? You want it erased? This is how. You need to be washed. Did you know Paul was washed? Paul was washed from his sin. He didn't wash himself, but Paul was washed in the blood of Jesus Christ when he was baptized into Christ. And that's exactly what Ananias told him. Why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. Now, this is going to probably read a little bit differently than maybe what you're accustomed to, because it's not King James or New King James. It's from the New American Standard. And I'm going to tell you why I chose to use that translation in a moment. And all of you who are Bible students are going to hear a word in a moment. You're going to go, well, 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 hold on, on. Hold on. We're going to get there. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If I said, what word is it that's different? A lot of you are going, the word appeal is very different than answer. It's very different, isn't it? Why would they translate the word that's translated answer in one translation, appeal, in this one? Well, because the Greek is the word eprotame, which means to inquire, to ask. Sometimes it's translated to demand of someone. Now think about this. What is baptism? Baptism is an appeal to God for a clean conscience. It's not a washing of the outer man. It's an inquiring of, it's an asking for, an inner cleansing. That's what we need. 
not a physical outer bath. We need an inner cleansing. We need to call on the name of the Lord and say, wash me, cleanse me thoroughly from my iniquity. And baptism is how we do that. When we appeal to God to give us a clean conscience. Colossians chapter 2 verses 11 through 13 says this, In him, that's Jesus, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now I want to deal with this verse first because that, that's very wordy and there's a whole lot of things about circumcision that, that may, maybe if you're not familiar with the context, this would just, we'd gloss over it and not get the point. In the, in the early church, there was a large body of Jews and a large body of Gentiles, and now they're all together in one body. And you could not find two more culturally different people than Jews and Gentiles. They were so different culturally, but they were also different religiously. And now all of a sudden it's like, okay, now you're all family. With all the history, all the traditions, everything you've ever done. And, and here's what happened. These Jews started saying, look, you guys are uncircumcised. You can't be saved without being circumcised. You need to be circumcised. And so if you look through these letters that Paul writes to Galatia, to Colossians, uh, also to uh, the letter of the Hebrews, and, and even there's, there's some of that even in Romans about circumcision, he's trying to correct their errors and say, look, you've already been circumcised. No, there wasn't a surgical procedure wherein skin was removed, but notice, in him you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of what? Skin? No. Sin. Whatever circumcision he's talking about that he told these Gentiles at Colossae that they had, it removed sin. And what was that circumcision? Verse 12. Buried with him in baptism. We're also your risen with him through the working, uh, through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now let's sit on verse 12 for just a moment. You ever heard anybody say to you, all that's nonsense, baptism is a work. And we're not saved by works. Is baptism a work? You know, I've told some of y'all that I, I had a heart attack back in 2020. And maybe sometime I'll share the whole story with you. But I, I went into the hospital. And here's these experts. And they took me into a cath lab. And they put me on this monitoring system and imaging system where they could see what was going on. And they went in there and they, they, they fixed my heart. They fixed my artery. And they put me in ICU. Can you imagine if I came out of that operation and I walked in there and, I, and my wife came in and I said, Honey, did you see what I did? Did you see what I did? She'd be like, What are you talking about? Well, I saved my own life. Don't, don't you agree that I saved my own life? And she'd probably say, I don't know what, did they give you too much Versed, fentanyl? I don't, I don't know what, you're talking nonsense. We're at the hospital. You just had a surgery. They saved your life. You didn't save your life. They saved your life. We get that, right? We say, well, it'd be insanity. Well, it's insanity for us to read this verse and understand that what baptism really is, is it's faith in the working of God. Is baptism a work? Absolutely. Who does the work? God does. Baptism is faith. It's submitting. It's appealing. It's saying, here I am. I'm dirty. Cleanse me. Wash me. I trust you that you're going to wash me. And what happens Look at verse 13. He says, And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that's their former state, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Paul says, You don't need to be circumcised. You've had the only circumcision that matters. Because God performed a surgical procedure on you whereby he removed all trespasses out of your life and he gave life to your dead, sinful man. Listen, can you be saved without God operating? No, you cannot. And where does that happen? 
It's when we appeal to God and say, wash me. Cleanse me thoroughly from my iniquity. And baptism is when we do that. And that's exactly what Peter was pointing to, that we appeal to God. Imagine that you had on your record, murdered God's son. How would you get past that? You know, but amazingly, when these people said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? What Peter did not say was nothing. There's nothing you can do. In fact, you're doomed for hell. I just want to tell you how guilty you were. Even the people that killed God's son, you know what he said? Repent and be baptized, every one of you. He didn't say, repent, be baptized, except you, 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 and you. He said, every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. You know what that means? If you'll do this, God will justify you. And you will reach and be impacted by the redeeming blood of Jesus, and he will bring you back to God. That's when it happens. So, question, maybe you've done that and you think to yourself, well, I've done that and I'm still really struggling with my past. You know something else about Paul? Paul wasn't just washed, Paul was different. And when I say he was different, I don't mean he was strange or he was weird. Now, he was in some ways. But when I say Paul was different, I mean Saul of Tarsus was a different man than Paul the Apostle. He was different. Listen to how he described this. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. It is no longer I who live. But Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by what? By faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now this is a problem in Christianity. This is a real big problem in modern Christianity especially because what people get the idea is I can come and I can be saved by Jesus Christ and then he can become part of my life. That is nonsense. That's nonsense. Jesus doesn't become a part of our life. He is our life. He's our life. And what we say and what we do and what we think are now dictated by Jesus. They're governed by Jesus. I don't do what I want. I don't think how I want to think and live how I want to live and fight for the battles I want to fight for. I fight for Jesus. Jesus tells me how to live and what to do. That's what Paul's saying. I'm dead, but Jesus lives and he lives within me. And now I live by faith. Is that you? Are you different? Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. Now we know, and if you're familiar with Romans 6, you know that in the waters of baptism, we die. Our old man is crucified. But you know what? That's not enough. You've got to realize that. You've got to reckon yourself, consider yourself as dead to sin. And here's why. Because if you don't, you'll go right back to it. You'll live in it. And what we often do is we come to Jesus and we let Jesus live in us for a while, but then we resurrect the old dead man and he takes over. And I'm going to tell you something. Christians sin. Christians sin. But Christians struggle against their temptation. They don't struggle against God. They struggle against their sin. And they surrender to God. They submit to God. And far too many people believe that Jesus will be your Savior. And you can have Him as Savior, but not your Lord. He must be Lord. Not just Savior, but Savior and Lord. And that word Lord means He has control. He tells me what to do and I follow Him. He's either Savior and Lord or He's neither. So you've got to be different. You can't just come and be washed and then just jump right back in the mud. And then go, oh, oh, I jumped in the mud. Wash me. 
You've got to be different. Listen to the language Paul used in Colossians 3 and 5. He says, therefore, put to death. Put to death. That is strong language. Put to death. Put to death your members which are on the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire. Covetousness, which is idolatry. Put to death. What happens when you put something to death? It has no life. It has no impact. It has no effect on you anymore. Put to death. Notice what is said in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. He says, therefore we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, now listen, and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with patience or endurance the race that is set before us. I was watching a movie, I don't know, it's, it's been much, well over a decade. I can't even tell you what the movie is now, but, but there was one scene... Kind of a cinematography nerd. So there was one scene in this movie that, that I remember very vividly. And, and it was this damsel in distress, for lack of a better term. And she's being chased by these soldiers. And it's one of those scenes that's really intense. You know, the music is really intense. And there's all these different shots. There's these shots panning across trees and, and zooming in for close-ups. And arrows are hitting trees. And the bark flies off. And there's hatchets flying past. I mean, really intense, and her heart's beating fast, and she's running, and she's running, and she's running, and she finally gets out to this clearing. And she turns around, she looks, and there's no one there. And she just breathes a sigh of relief and turns around and runs face first into the chest of a soldier. So she turns to run, and she gets the chest of another soldier. And then the camera pans out, and here they are surrounding her. She is ensnared. That word means to be thwarted on all sides. You say, why are we talking about this? I'll tell you why. Because that's what your sin will do to you. You want to get past your past? Don't live like your past. Because until you start making different decisions and submitting your heart and your mind and your strength and your soul to God... You will never get past your past because every time you try to move forward, Satan will say, no, sit down, sinner. You're unworthy. You're dirty. You're unclean. Your sin will block you. You've got to be different. You say, I don't know how. Find the elders here. Find the deacons. Find Christians here and say, I'm having trouble with my sin. Help me. But don't just sit and wait and watch and hope that things are going to be different if you're not different. You've got to be different. Paul was different. You know, finally, Paul did not try to deny or hide his sins. You know, David did that for a while. You ever thought about how much time passed between the night of passion and the confrontation with Nathan? Let's just estimate, okay? I, I don't know how many days, but let's estimate. Here's what I do know. They didn't have pregnancy tests back then. How'd you know you're pregnant? Well, I do know from the text that she had just been cleansed from her time. So at least a month before she goes, hey, I'm pregnant, probably five weeks. But now the word is sent to David. Now he's got to get Uriah back home from the battlefield. So he comes home, but then he's got to send him back. And then he's killed, and then the message is brought back. Then Nathan confronts him. There's months gone by. And David's hiding this sin. But once it's exposed, you know what he did? He came clean. He said, I've sinned. If you deny that it happened, it'll be right here. All your life. You'll never get past the sin until you own it and say, I did it. It was wrong, I did it. You know, I'm thankful for David. David's not like a, a lot of us men. We're, we're very closed off emotionally a lot of times, aren't we? 
That's men, right? We're, we're, we're men. We, we're closed off emotionally. David was not that way. In fact, what we really see in the Psalms is a glimpse into his inner man. And I'm thankful for that. And I'll tell you why. Because we can learn from it. We can learn from it. See, Paul dealt with this guilt not only because of Stephen, but notice in verse 10, this also I did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in a prison, and having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. You know, we, look, we probably look at what Paul did and say, you know, you, you could have went to these places, and they don't even know who you are. Why are you telling them about all the bad things you did? Just... You're kind of running your opportunities to evangelize, man. You need, to, you need to let them think that you're great and you're wonderful and you're clean and you're perfect. That's kind of our modern thinking. There's a word for that. It's called hypocrite. Hypocrite. Paul said, look, this is who I am. This is what I've done. But this is what Jesus has made me. And I'm not going to boast in what I am now. I'm going to boast in Jesus. There was a reason he came clean. So others could learn. Listen to David. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Amen? Amen? Is that a blessing? I don't know of a greater blessing. To know with assurance that my sin is hidden. That God's forgiven it. But there's another side to this. Look at verse 2. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. You know what that word impute means? It means to count it against. Now listen, God, he remembers our sin. You say, well, I, I thought he said he would remember it no more. And I'm not going to get into a deep discussion about this. But listen, God knows that we've sinned. He remembers our sin. I know that because it's God who inspired someone to write to me about David's sin. God inspired us to know about Paul's sin he, and Peter's sin. God knows that we've sinned. What forgiveness is is when God says, I know what happened, but I don't count it against you. I don't count it against you. I don't impute it to you. But there's another side. When God does impute that sin and you know it and you feel it, here's what happens. David said, when I kept silent, when I hid my sin, my bones grew old through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand, God's hand, was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Say, so, oh. David said, when I tried to hide my sin, it was like God's hand was crushing me under the weight of his goodness and his glory and his justice. It was like the life was literally just drained from my body. Oh, but, he, but he goes on even further. Listen to this in Psalms chapter 38. He says, oh Lord, do not rebuke me in your hot displeasure. Uh, rebuke me in your wrath, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. For your arrows pierce me deeply, and your hand presses me down. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your anger, nor any health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They're too heavy for me. My wounds are foul and festering. Did you hear that? My wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. I am troubled. I bow down greatly. I go mourning all the day long. And I want to do something a little bit maybe out of the box, okay? I want to diagnose David. You say, what do you mean you want to diagnose David? I want, I'm, what I'm saying is, let's put all of David's symptoms on a piece of paper and diagnose him. What is David describing here? Well, the first thing he mentions is fear. God, don't rebuke me in your wrath, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. He was worried about God's rebuke and wrath. Fear. Then he talked about God's, the guilt of his sin. 
being like an inward piercing, he said, your arrow pierces me deeply. Now, do you think he really thought God had shot an arrow that had penetrated him? No, he's just poetically describing the pain and guilt and shame he's feeling. Like an arrow. And he said, and your hand presses me down. He said, there's no soundness in my flesh. What's that mean? You ever wake up and you think, well, I don't feel right. And then you're a little bit grumpy, a little irritable, a little agitated, and somebody says, what's wrong with you? I don't know. I don't feel good. Well, what's wrong with you? I don't know. I just don't feel good. Nothing feels right. You ever been there? Well, you wake up, nothing feels right. Physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, nothing feels right. That's what he means. There's no soundness in my flesh. Nothing is right. There's nothing right about what's going on in me. He said, it's too heavy. I'm walking around all day carrying this around. It's just too heavy. He said, I, I can't bear this anymore. In fact, I'm, my wounds are foul and festering. And I know this is graphic, but what he means by that is they are infected and they stink. How's a wound get to that point? Because it gets infected through neglecting. You leave a wound for long enough, sometimes it gets worse and worse and worse. That's what he means. It's not getting better. It's not healing. It's getting much worse. He said, I walk around, bowed down greatly all along. Let's diagnose David. You know what David sounds like to me? What if he went into a doctor's office and he wrote all those things down on a piece of paper? What would that doctor tell him? Sir, I'm not sure I can help you. But I know a good psychiatrist or psychologist that you need to talk to because I'm going to tell you, it's just apparent to me, you're mentally ill. Is he? You better believe it. But you know what? This is not a genetic disorder that he has. You know what all these symptoms are from? That inward reminder of not being right with God made him sick. Now, do not misunderstand me. Mental illness is real. There are physiological things that happen inside of a person's brain, sometimes from trauma or other reasons, that may cause what we would term as mental illness. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But here is what I want us to think about. Sometimes it's not mental illness from some sickness. It is the effects and the gravity of sin in our life that's been unresolved. And that's what happened with David. And what I'm saying is this, if you're feeling these things, let's search here first. Let's search for God's peace first. And let's do what God said before we run off and have somebody say, well, here's these pills, go take them and go rest. Because sometimes that's not what's going to fix it. Sometimes it's sin. That we just haven't done what God said. That's what happened to David. You know, this is probably one of the most, if not the most neglected passages in the New Testament. You say, well, that's sort of a general assumption, isn't it? Okay, let me ask you a question. When's the last time that you went to a brother or a sister and you said to them, I've sinned and this is what I did and I really need you to pray for me. Is that a culture y'all have here? Is that something that y'all do? I'm not asking you to nod or just raise your hand. I'm just asking the question. Is that something you do as part of your life? Do you confess your sins to one another? You know what I hear? I can't do that. I hear this too. That will never work. Why don't we just spit in God's face? Just spit in his face. It won't work? Really? So you're going to tell the creator who designed you, who formed your consciousness, that he doesn't know you as well as you know you? You know what really is the truth a lot of times? We just don't want the humiliation of looking at somebody in the face and saying, I sinned. We're trying to spare ourselves from losing our dignity. 
And I want you to think about this. James says if you'll confess your faults and pray for one another, you will be what? Healed. So what we do is to spare ourselves of that uncomfortable moment where somebody knows us because now we're vulnerable, save us from the humiliation, we'd rather keep the illusion of our dignity and be sick. That's insane. That's insane. When we do what God says, we're healed. Not just one one sin, but all sin. God cleanses from all unrighteousness. So I want to ask you, have you acknowledged your sin? And I, I'm not suggesting that every time we sin, we go tell somebody about it. I don't, I don't believe the Bible prescribes that, but I do know this. Sometimes those big sins, those sins that bring us shame, that haunt us, they're not going to go away until we look at it in the face. And sometimes it takes the shame of having to admit that to our brother or our sister to get past it and have them pray for us. And that's what, God, that's what he prescribes. David said, I acknowledge my sin. Right after he said, my sin is taking the life out of me, he said, I acknowledged it. I confessed it and you forgave it. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know if you've got sin that's been haunting you. I don't know if you've been having something that just follows you around everywhere you go. But I just want to ask you some simple questions as we close. And one of those is, do you trust in God's grace? Have you been cleansed in the blood of Jesus? Have you appealed to God for a washing? And I want you to know something. If your past is haunting you and you haven't done this, you should feel guilty because you're dirty. And you need Jesus to wash you. And you'll always be dirty until you make that decision and you, you submit to God, you surrender to Him and you do that. You'll always be dirty. You'll never get past it. Are you still living in sin? And again, I don't mean do you still commit sin. I mean are you practicing it? Are you living in it? Don't ever expect to be at peace with God as long as you're rejecting Him as Lord. It won't come. You'll have peace when you make the decision to surrender your life to Jesus and follow Him. But until then, you should feel guilty. Because you are denying what God accomplished in you when He sanctified you and set you apart. You're dirtying what He cleansed. Are you still hiding your sin? You know why we have a tradition of offering invitation after we look at God's word? Because sometimes God's word, it pierces us deeply. And it shakes the foundation of our world. It moves our conscience. And we're moved and we're stirred and we go, I need to do something about this. I feel very anxious about this. And, and then we have an invitation song and, 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 and we're sitting there and we're thinking, should I go, should I not? And, and I'll tell you, it's very hard. It's very hard. But then other times we just think, man, if I can just, just endure this until this service is over, I can go out to my car and I can drive off and leave. Dirty. Sick. Wounded. Guilty. Friends, I can't do anything for you. I'm just a man. But God is merciful and full of loving kindness. And I'll tell you one thing God does not reject. He does not reject the contrite heart. And when we bring our brokenness to him and we say, I'm broken, heal me, fix me, God fixes. He blesses, he heals, he forgives. And if you need the forgiveness of God tonight, we will help bring that before him. Come have a seat. Let us help you. Don't leave here unresolved with God.
Just come and receive the peace of God through Jesus Christ. Come now while we stand and we sing. Have a seat on the front.